0: Welcome to the Disco Posse Podcast. Thanks for listening. If you're looking for the GC on demand, then you found the freshly rebranded Disco Posse Podcast. Go to Podcast.com for details. everyone to the Disco Posse podcast. My name is Eric Wright. I'm going to be your host today. Don't forget to keep following along. You can go to DiscoPossePodcast.com, get show notes, links, and more. You can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. And with that, let's get started. All right. Well, thank you very much, everybody, for uh, tuning in. Uh, my name is Eric Wright. I am Disco Posse here in the Green Circle community. I'm at Disco Posse on Twitter, And I'm very happy to have uh, with us today a a special guest, uh, Chris Wall. Uh, Chris, if you want to introduce yourself to the group and talk about where we can find you online. And and then we're going to dive into something very interesting, which is this idea of the technology evangelist. So, uh, you know, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks, but it sounds like you're giving me the option. Can I choose not to introduce myself?
0: Yeah, no, it's a mandatory <laughs> introduction.
1: <laughs> all right, all right. Well, hello out there. And when I first saw GC as the initialism, I was thinking like flash drives and garbage collections. so I have to reset to the green circle nomenclature nice. for that. <laughs> so the good kind of GC. Anyways, um, my name is Chris Wall. Um, I am the owner and writer for wallnetwork.com, which is a blog that I've been running for almost six years now. I wrote Networking for VMware Administrators, a book by VMware Press, uh, along with my co-author Steve Pantall. And uh, I'm on the Twitters, at ChrisWaltz, W-A-H-L, and my day job, which I suppose we'll be talking about a little bit today, is I'm the tech evangelist for a data protection company called Rubrik.
0: And it's it's neat you've got such a, a storied sort of career in a lot of the things that you've touched you've 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 done a lot of things in the industry uh, i've been a huge fan of of your you know your blog and and your your reading i'm literally looking on my bookshelf at your book right now uh, so great work you know and, yeah. and it's it's i'm really you know, super proud because, you know, you also do a ton of community work. You know, you helped out with us when we did the virtual design master uh, community competition. Uh, you were an, an early adopter as as judge one in season one. That was very cool. Uh, and, you know, you do a lot generally amongst the community for v experts on the Cisco side, like kind of all over. There isn't a thing that you haven't touched on the community side. And that kind of made it a natural mm-hmm. fit when we hear about this role, the technology evangelist.
1: And well, I, That's all the fun stuff, the that's other community right. stuff. Is, is, it's selfish because that's the fun stuff. Everything else is work, right? So. <laughs> that's right. It,
0: and so Ken Hoy, uh, also, you know, uh, a longtime technology evangelist. Ken works at Platform9 now. He was at Rackspace before, at EMC as well, and he's carried on this role through different... Uh, different organizations. And, and I've always looked up to Ken in, in the way that he was, you know, a good sort of evangelist and how he went out to the community with things. And he published a, a retweeted an article from Forbes. And it says, you know, why does every company, every tech company need a technology evangelist? It was written, you know, citing, you know, Guy Kawasaki, uh, Robert Scoble, uh, you know, folks who are obviously big leaders early on with this idea of this evangelist role. Now, granted, you know, VM Turbo and Rubrik, not exactly Apple and Microsoft, but Mm. the role transcends that, right? Size doesn't matter when it comes to, you know, how your organization needs to get its face out there. So how do you view your role, you know, and what do you think a technology evangelist is?
1: Wow, that's a good question. I mean, to your first point, I was the 48th employee around those parts, so definitely size is kind of arbitrary. I think it more depends on the culture and the maturity of the business and what they're looking to do. But as far as being a tech evangelist and what the role does, I don't really have much of an idea per se. I've been doing this particular job for seven or eight months now and if you were to list out, you, you know, if you were asking me to list out everything that is in the, you know, roles and responsibilities list, I would have no idea. I, I think tech evangelism is more of the personality of the person that comes into the role and what they want to bring to the table. As an example, yeah, you know, I'm much more of a technologist and, and engineer at heart, did architecture as a consultant for almost half a decade and so... I naturally kind of gravitate towards that, and I like the marketing aspect of of what can be done in this particular role, so I tend to blend more marketing and engineering together. But if you look at some other folks that are pretty prominent in the industry, um, like Frank Deniman, for example, he's very deep into the weeds on how to do the engineering, what is the architecture going to look like, what is the next generation of, you know, flash and performance going to look like. And then yourself, you're actually doing, you know, Eric, you've done a lot of community stuff, you're kind of talking about VM Turbo by not talking about VM Turbo. And that's something that I kind of like. And so I think the personality of the person that joins the role ultimately dictates what it's going to do. At the end of the day, the goal of the technical evangelist, I think, is just to make people, A, aware that the company exists in some way, shape, or form, and B, be a liaison to those people so that they can talk to you know, the right people with an engineering product, sales, whatever it may be.
0: That's cool, and and I love that outreach piece of it, right? That's it's not just a it's not just a bullhorn, you know, telling a story, because they're they're quite often and, and a few comments that came back in when when I saw you know this sort of Twitter stream on on things and I was like oh this is really cool, obviously it's somebody in the role I agree with it, but you know some people said well shouldn't this just be an, an SE can do this like it didn't it seemed some people seemed to reject the idea that a company needed an evangelist as a role, you know, because they said mm-hmm. NESE should be doing this because it should be, it's supposed to be the blend of, you know, understanding the technology, being able to emote the message outwards. But I, I saw it as more, and I like what you, you classed as like talking about the company by not talking about it. It's, and then being able to start the conversation, people kind of talk about things and then you, you pull them back in if they need help. They're like, Hey, look, I, I need to reach inside. Frank's a great example. You know, Frank is a, a, again, huge community advocate, you know, publishes, you know, in lots of different ways. And yeah, you just know that, you know, you forget sometimes that, he works where he works because he's just telling you about the technology. And mm-hmm. then you go, oh, yeah, that's right. Well, of course, it makes sense because, you know, now, you know, wherever he works, he's, his, you know, sort of brand will transcend where he's at as well, which is which is neat. And, and I think you've got that as well. I've always viewed you as as a good evangelist for technology because of what you did with your own blog and your own, you know, like you're a published author, which was, you know, it's a, there's a lot of work. It's a crazy amount of work to do that. So evangelizing continuously, you know, you've done it as a blogger, as a writer. How do you how do you choose something that you want to work on, get technically adept at it and then share the story? Like when you got into networking and you started to to work on the book with Steve Pantall, you know, how did that come to be?
1: Well, let me offer, you touched on one thing that I wanted to comment on around the, the SE and how that differs from the role. And there's various other roles. Technical marketing engineer comes to mind as well. And I think it's important to remember that SE, you know, the the S is typically sales engineer or, or right. something related to sales. And they're, they're often under some kind of compensation plan or they're paired with an account rep. And they're a much more intimate with a specific number of accounts typically. You know, these are the folks that are going to be, the hands, eyes, and feet of proof-of-concept endeavors that are going on. The sales team that's looking to make relationships happen. You know, it's it's a more relationship-driven but finite bra- audience that they're working with. Whereas I think the technical evangelist is is often best served with a one-to-many type relationship. You know, a, a webinar or an event or dealing with community where it's you know one of me to hopefully hundreds or thousands of, of people in the audience. So I think those are some sticking points that that may offer differentiation, although at certain sizes and with certain personalities, it is difficult to differentiate between the two roles. As far as the networking book, you know, how we came about with that and why we decided to do that, I mean, realistically, it was this simple um i don't know how many years ago let's let's say 3 just to pick a number um, <laughs> i was approached by vmware press uh, i got a phone call kind of a cold call from vmware press and they said you know we're we're kind of just going down the roster of people that are certified by vmware as vcdxs the the expertise uh, or the design expert cert rather and uh, your name came up a few times and we we're just wondering if you have an idea for a book you know we're looking for writers to beef up our portfolio and oh man did i have an earful for uh, the lady that called <laughs> me because I was always very upset that other than the mastering vSphere book, there really wasn't anything that went anywhere near to the word deep around networking, especially for virtualization. You know, there's a lot of great physical networking books out there for Cisco and Juniper and whatnot, but realistically, all the books that covered virtual networking was more about how to configure, you know, wh- where the nerd knobs were, but right. not why you would turn them and why you wouldn't. And so. I gave them an outline and said, I, "I really would like to write this book." And you know, obviously, they tell you that you're not going to make any money, and that's certainly true. <laughs> so it's a, it's a, it, it was kind of a a bummer because I knew right away I wanted to donate all the money to charity, and I'm like, "Okay, cool. It's just unfortunate that it's not going to be you know private island level money because then I could really like solve Alzheimer's." But I digress. Yeah, uh, I, I I looked to Steve because he had a great personality. If you read the book, the Networking for VMware Administrators book, and you laugh at a joke, something that's funny in there, I can pretty much guarantee Steve wrote it. I was more <laughs> the the technical. Let's get through the drudgery, and I, I have my certain flair for entertainment. But Steve is hilarious. He's a very funny guy. He's also very technical too. And so that was the idea. Let's let's solve this problem. In that there really wasn't anything that covered things like. Distributed switch design and how it varies from standard switch design, and why you'd set port groups up a certain way, and all these little questions that I had kind of picked up as gold nuggets over time. Things like NFS and iSCSI design. Let's put in a book. Let's understand. We're not going to make really any significant amounts of money at this, uh, but it allows us to, you know, check that box and say, all right, that content is now out there, and hopefully we can keep it renewed. I, I do plan to write a second edition at some point when I get some more free time.
0: Nice. So that is. I love that. And well, let's talk about voice. You, you nailed it right there, right? You read a book and you you find something funny and you know you say that, that Steve, you know, I've read a lot of your stuff and, and I know I can I can literally pick out content you know generally by the author, which is funny because as we especially as we get to know people, and I'm lucky enough that I've been able to meet folks like yourself and and, and other folks that are in the community and having grown up on their blogs and books. And you start to read it in their voice. And that's an important piece because just, you know, mm-hmm. putting down technical content is one thing, but being able to do it, and I call it emoting the message rather than just then sending the message. It's literally putting emotion into it and having a personality and your voice on there. How How do you feel that, you know, voice matters when you read content, when you consume information from folks?
1: Well, let's be honest, you know, tech tech books are pretty darn boring. You know, I had to go through <laughs> lots of them to get, you know, when I was under my certification craze where I was looking to just, I guess, certify myself in every technology possible. I read a lot of books and most of it, you know, the old saying, it reads like stereo instructions, which I guess is dating myself, but <laughs> it was just really boring. It was like, here is how to assemble something really cool, but we're going to distill it into the most plain Techie, you know, just stuff that makes your ears bleed, language, and being a person, I, I've read hundreds and hundreds of books. I eat books for lunch and dinner because I love sci-fi and fantasy and things like that. It, it's, a, it's a great way to, to up your diction and things like that anyways. Um, I was thinking, man, there's really no reason to make these books this boring. There's actually great content here. It just needs a little bit of storytelling to it. and so to answer your question, I think everything should have your voice in it. If you're not telling a story and and really capturing your audience, then they're not going to, A, retain hardly anything that you're putting in there. They're going to have to do that that memorization techniques where they just write it down four or five times, and, and then it flushes as soon as they're done with the exam or whatever it may be. So you know, the first point is entertainment sticks better in your brain. And the second point is uh, this came up recently. I forget what I was reading. It was, um, oh, I think it was exercise related. So uh, I, I started doing the P90X version three, and the big deal between version three and version two was it's thirty-minute exercises instead of an hour. Right. And they said, well, even though it's less exercise, so therefore you would think less, you know, actual results. Because it's less exercise, more people will do it more frequently, and therefore the net gain is that you'll lose more weight and you'll exercise more frequently. You know, you'll have more net time exercising. Yeah. yeah. So that's a, that's kind of where I'm at. If we can make it more fun and maybe maybe add a little bit of fluff and humor to it and and add some of that that magic to it, you might read 80 or 90 percent of the book rather than the first 10 or 20 percent and then give up. And so just having that humor in there helps you consume more of the content holistically.
0: I always remember one of my first certifications I got was Novell Certified NetWare Administrator. It was like 4.11. Uh, and the Novell Press, wow. which was – I think it was Novell Press or Network Press, whatever, which ultimately became Cybex, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I remember the reading it because – There was a line there and it said, it was about token ring networking, like super old school. And it said, what do you do if a network, a token ring network card beacons? It says you burn it as an example to the others. And it was, it was wildly out of character for a technical book to have humor in it. And I read that thing (laughs) from cover to cover twice to, to be ready for the exam. If it had been, you know, and I'd read Cisco stuff for my Cisco certification and I was like, oh, God, I can't get I can't get through this. It was literally on Bible paper. It was it was like it was terrible trying to get through it and, and stay excited. But I, I remember that book and I thought, I'm gonna seek out authors like this. And 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 I love that you've you've done that and you see that value. Now you speak at a lot of events as well. You know, part of evangelizing and 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 being an, an outward voice to you know community and stuff. You've, you've been at VMUGS and you've, you've been at, you know, lots of other things, VMworld itself, you know, sort of large scale things. What, what prepares you for doing that? You know, there, I'm going to, I'd maybe even want to bring you on with a couple other folks to talk about the public Mm -hmm. speaking side of it. Because writing is one thing, but being able to get up on stage, deliver that content is, it's a different beast. How did, how do you find that part of, of your role and, and, and what you've done in the community as well?
1: That's a good question. Um, well, I'm one of those weird people that loves being up in public, and I generally don't get nervous or anxious or anything. I, I just like to do it. So I guess we'll take that piece of it and we'll put that aside, because I, I, th- I feel like that's abnormal. And so part of it is just passion for doing that sort of thing. As far as my process, which I think may be more informative and helpful to your audience, the first thing that I realize when I'm doing public speaking is that there's a huge amount of debt that the audience is paying me. And I think that puts me in the right mindset. To explain that, let's just say it's going to be 100 people in the audience and it's an hour-long presentation, you know, plus or minus. So that's 100 hours of audience debt that I have to then make worth their while you know I have to if I invest 100 hours of my time from cradle to grave conception to building the deck to doing the delivery for that presentation I have then equaled the amount of time that the audience is investing to come hear or see me and so I I think that's the right attitude just to get yourself motivated off the ground is that It's an hour-long presentation, so I'm going to put 30 minutes into it, wham, bam, done. That's the wrong mindset. You're really wasting their time. So number one, making sure I have enough time set aside and appreciate the value that the audience is bringing to me. The second one is the thing that I talked about earlier on the book, right? telling a story. Now that's sometimes challenging, depending on the company you work with, whether or not you have to present a deck. I I know like um, the VMware decks, that are presented at VMUGS at times for the SEs and the evangelists that work in the, um, what is it, the CTO's office. Yeah, yeah. Right, they have to deliver, you know, one of them I believe was a VMworld update and it was 130 slides or something like that in in 15 minutes. I mean, that's just ludicrous, you know. That would be three and a half seconds per slide or something goofy. And so that's obviously a constraint, but in a lot of cases you you can control the content that's gonna be put in there and tell it as a story. Right, so if you think about passing along one major concept in your presentation, right, don't give them the laundry list and and soup kitchen or the uh, kitchen sink of a hundred things. You know, what's, what's the takeaway? How do I turn that into a story? And how can I present it in such a way that it's interesting? And if you look at story writing, it's all about setting up the main characters, setting up a conflict of some sort bringing enough details to get you to a climax, and then resolving it. You know, the the four parts of storytelling. And if you can craft a story out of the technology using your personal anecdotes, your, your experiences, and deliver it in such a way that is pleasing to the ear, you know, get rid of the ums and ahs and whatnot, I think you're gonna be successful just with those two things right there. Everything else is about building the deck and the animations and things like that that are very technical and have very little to do with the quality of the presentation. I don't really care if you have animations and builds. In fact, I kind of put a negative one on builds uh, when it comes to rating somebody. I think that just being able to present with a photo or something like that is is quality enough. So don't worry about building the deck necessarily to be this amazing work of art because you're going to change it anyways. The, The third takeaway I have is when you go to build the presentation build it completely as an outline and have it set up as a flow to accompany your story using, I I just do text. You know, I just write down kind of ideas, what I'm going to do, get it all kind of put together in an order that makes sense. And then put together the imagery and things like that and set it up and time yourself to see how long it's going to take. I I think those would be my three big takeaways to, you know, kind of preparing and delivering, you know, decks for public speaking. If that answers your question.
0: Yeah, that's great. You know, so constraint is a classic thing, and that leads me to two things, right? Theory of constraints stuff that you've looked at. You know, uh, I'm a huge fan of Gene Kim and and George Baffert, Kevin Baer, when they wrote, you know, the Phoenix Project, and it also talks about storytelling. Phoenix, the Phoenix Project, and the goal stand out as as oddities among technology, you know, and guidance manuals because they're not technology books. They're psychology books in in my mind you know talk about the phoenix project and how you know how did you i know you've read it before and you know how they've emoted the concepts through a human story you know i love that and i love to to you know point people to it's like how do you find you know is that like an extension of of what you talked about with the presentation and with other stuff it's like do you feel that's a good example
1: well it's a great book and a really good story because what they've taken is all of these really commonplace challenges that you'll hit. They've personified them. So in enterprise IT, you're going to hit challenges with the SEB1 call and getting stakeholders to get on board with your project and the overriding kind of breathing down your neck that the CEO can provide or maybe detriment to the project because they want to, you know, be in charge and beat their chest. And so they distilled all of these things into people, right? They gave them a face and a name and activities so that you're really rooting for, I can't remember the main character's name, but you know, the guy that took over IT kind of begrudgingly, Right. you're rooting for him, he's hitting all of these challenges and they're being shown very clearly under this microscope of how do we relate to people. And that's ultimately the best way to showcase real-world IT because rarely, rarely, rarely is it technical challenges that really impede a project you know, unless you've got my IBM shark storage box that I can't get rid of. I mean, these are, these are very infrequent problems. More frequently, it's going to be these issues with people and their backgrounds, what they're being compensated for, their beliefs as far as technology, their experience, and their political agenda. You know, what are they, what are they looking to show for when they get their you know, quarterly or end-of-year reviews? Right And so this book does a great job at distilling all of those down to personified stories that I would think anyone with any amount of time in i t is going to read through and kind of nod their head and have met you yeah, know it's the, totally relatable right? <laughs> The guru guy who just instantly solves stuff in the sev one and doesn't tell you how to fix it. and he's just all about travel. I'm like, oh I, I know that guy. I know yeah. three of that guy, you know, and it, it also gives you ways to gracefully resolve those issues which I think is the best part of the book.
0: Yeah, and you know it it ultimately rolls back to, you know, evangelism as as a like I said I I think of it more as like a psychologist type of opportunity where you're like you're listening a lot, and you listen to the community, you listen to people that are doing it, and then you think like how do we solve this? And then, you know, Whether it's inside or outside, you know, taking that and using a technical resolution to, you know, people problems—that's the—that's the the core of of everything we do. Like technology is neat and all, uh, but the end result is we're we're solving human problems, right? Now, how much how much of your Outside stuff also comes back inside because I want to talk about the how an organization wins by having you or somebody as an evangelist. Do you do you find good value that you can bring back into the engineering team or to the executive team and say, "Hey, this is I like where you're going. However, I think we should go this way." Like, do you? How much do you get to bring back into the company?
1: Hmm. I mean, that's also a good question and difficult to measure. Right? It's very. It's not very you know quantitative, it's more qualitative and based on you know feedback and the short time that I've worked there I, I've gotten or I've received rather some pretty healthy feedback. Um, some examples really stem from my experience in enterprise IT you know I've been working working in some way shape or form since the late 90's uh, in, in all sorts of verticals and so I can bring some of that experience to the table as well as having worked on the channel um, so I can bring some of that experience to the table, um, and then I think the rest of it would be just experience with various technologies on a hands-on basis, such as, you know, Cisco's suite of technologies across UCS and, and their switches and whatnot, as well as VMware virtualization. You know, I I think you bring up a good point there in that there there are definitely ways that that it's benefited, but I I really am more focused on being that that whole company overlay and that. I don't mind who talks to me, and I, I like engaging with any particular department on any particular issue, but I think a lot of my value is really understanding who the right person might be, kind of being that default gateway, if you refer to a, a blog post that I wrote a while ago about you know, building up your personal network of people and who's the gateway for various pieces of information. Yeah. And so that that's where I tend to, to focus some of my time for the internal stuff. I mean, you get the certain, there's a certain amount of, I don't know. People that that have known me either through the blog or the book or whatnot and and at least then they're willing to take a meeting or they're less aggressive about, you know, pushing back on a meeting if they've not heard of the company before and I assume that's just the nature of the beast. You know, the same thing happened when I was in the channel. You know, sometimes there's a potential opportunity or a customer that that wants to do business because they feel like they know me a little better than just some random person. And that's just relationship building, right? There's yeah. there's really nothing magical about that. But um, I don't know. That's that's really hard to to quantify exactly. Uh, although I do feel that it, that it helps in some way, shape, or form. But I feel like once I start tracking stuff like that, I'll have to have someone, you know, put a pushpin in my head to deflate the ego. So I tend <laughs> I tend not to really focus on how much you know gravity I bring to the situation, and just focus on taking calls of people that want to tell me about things they want to put in my backlog or someone else's backlog helping prioritize those particular objects or those particular tasks and then providing a two-way you know round of communication you know what can i do for you what can you do for me and having that constant communication rather than the kind of marketing approach where it's just push you know it's just outbound i just want to tell you what's going on i want to tell you what we're doing but i also want to listen about what you want
0: and how do you how do you be a good marketer for yourself, for your company, whatever? I fi- I find that's a huge role. You know, we do it when we write a resume. You do it when you go for a job interview. You do it when you, you know, do any number of things. Some people do it more than others, right? And and that's why you know, we put ourselves out there to, you know, write more. And, and effectively, you're always creating a brand and, and marketing something, you know. How important is marketing yourself, you know, in, in all the things that you've done versus like just getting it done and then only sharing it with one person. Do you find that sharing it in a much wider audience was, has helped you in order to sort of expand your skills and your comfort?
1: Well, we're, we're all marketers and we're always marketing and we're all sales people and we're always selling, you know, those, those are truths that, that never evaporate. You know, even if we're not in those roles, we're always selling and marketing something. The first thing that I'll comment on for your question is you've got to be careful with the trap of humbleness. You know? And I think being humble is somewhat misconstrued these days. And, and I bring that up because part of marketing, and you bring up interviewing and looking for jobs and, and building your resume and things like that, is being able to tell what you've done, your accomplishments. And that can often be confused as being non-humble, you know, being... I guess egotistical or somewhat in some negative form and I think the difference there is being humble is accepting that there's things you don't know there's things you need to learn there are people that are better at things and tasks and skills than you are and that you're constantly on this journey right and that's not to be confused with the need to tell your story and your company's story and those as long as you do it in a punch-up positive manner that focus on what you bring to the table and what you've done I think are perfectly fine. And it just I bring this up because I saw a lot of commentary over the past month or so about talking to yourself is being equated with not being humble or or just being in some way disingenuous. And, right. and those two are obviously being confused. Now you bring up marketing as an example and and I have no formal <laughs> background in marketing. You know, I built Wall Network as a brand, just kind of on my gut and see to my pants and with a couple rules. You know, the first one, to quote Will Wheaton, he's this uh, great guy, he was uh, in Star Trek, in, in yeah. the, the Next Generation, uh, So, and he has this quote right on his website, says, don't be a dick. And I think that's a very simple rule to just always follow. Just If anything you're going to say, do, or, or act upon is something that you don't want your mother to see, or is just not something that feels good, it feels a little evil, just don't do it. So that, that's real simple. Uh, The other part of it is, I think you said this earlier in this particular podcast, was those folks that just are constantly blaring the horn constantly, Yeah. saying, you know, look at what we're doing, you know, tweet, 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 social media, Instagram, I'm not that hip on all the, I'm I'm more of a Twitter guy, but (laughs) (laughs) I don't use Snapchat, but, you know, just constantly sounding the horn, that's not marketing, that's just noise, right, and it's really how can you find signal to the noise? as an individual that works at a company because you're always building your brand regardless and you get to choose when you want to build the company's brand and so I would say be careful that you're not harming your brand and consequently harming the company's brand by doing things that just go for quantity over quality you know don't become more noise don't just retweet Thirty things in succession that your company has done or people said about your company as a long stream because I'm going to unfollow you if I see that. That's garbage. You know, become signal. What have other people done with your product? What are other people doing with their products? You know, I, re- I retweet and, and kind of share all sorts of things that are going on in the community because no one's sitting there wanting to just hear about you know in my case Rubric all day long. You know? right. <laughs> I don't even want to hear that much about it. I want to hear about all sorts of things that are going on in the greater ecosystem for enterprise IT all the way down to SMB. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's important to, to market all of those kind of things with your own thoughts and twist to it. So the takeaway there is be the signal, not the noise.
0: And I cover one last thing before we go, which is opinions. Now, uh, on something that came up in the article uh, about, you know, being an evangelist, it was about having opinions. It's important that we do, you know, you kind of put yourself out there and like, I, I think, you know, I I believe that this is the way it should go, or this you can find success if you choose this path, et cetera. Et cetera. And the other one I always find funny. So it's two two pieces. Uh, opinions are important. And what's your thought on the old classic Twitter bio? Opinions are mine. You know, that's
1: that little every disclaimer time. thing. <laughs> yeah. So. Maybe they're doing the disclaimer thing for legal reasons. I, i'm not I'm not legal counsel, so don't take anything I say to to a court of law. Uh, but that's really all that I can see it providing is some kind of legal shielding. The idea that you know tweets are mine, the opinions are mine, not that of my company is completely ludicrous because you are everyone is, not just a tech evangelist. Let's take a step back. Everybody at Rubrik is a representative of Rubrik as an example. So if they start posting photos of them going crazy and you know doing debaucherous things on Twitter or social media, whatever it is, yeah, yeah. that's ammunition. And it just maybe it paints it in a right light for some folks, but on the whole, they're always representing the company, you know. And you you really you know you can't take that stuff back once it's on the internet; it's there forever. So the disclaimer thing is largely garbage um, because you, your opinion is you're someone who works at the company, and like it or not as human beings we make that association yeah and so you have to be you have to be careful of that but it can work both ways you know if you're posting a lot of great commentary and providing signal to social media and other marketing platforms that is positive and people like it then they might click on your profile to see where you work so i, I tend to always put where i work in my profile and i don't even bother with the whole you know, my opinions are mine and no one else's and, yeah, yeah. you know, here here's the legal code <laughs> stating that <laughs> yeah. you can't sue me or something like that. Yeah, And that's, then, I will put an asterisk there, I do recall some of the larger companies, uh, HP for example, requiring profiles to have very certain, you know, format to them and has to include the word HP or can't include a product, uh, there's obviously some other ramifications to that. Right
0: yeah there are probably legitimate reasons why they do that, but I always find it's funny that this idea that you like you suddenly are are you know absolving yourself of responsibility by putting the disclaimer if you sure. if you take a picture of you and your friends doing standing hurls at Mardi Gras, it's, <laughs> it's you're not you're evangelizing your company in in negative ways. Like you're, con- you're marketing yourself and your brand and your company's brand everywhere you go. They don't suddenly go, Oh, well that was, that was weekend. Bob weekend. Yeah. Bob <laughs> likes to go to Las Vegas. It's okay. Cause on Monday he's, you know, yeah, an enterprise sales engineer for, you know, HP market, whatever, like the, whatever it's going to be, it is your opinions, maybe your own, but you always represent yourself. But,
1: but your I think company. the, the key thing, Eric is that, opinions are practically the only reason I follow people and I want to hear what they have to say. If I want to hear, as an example, what Microsoft is talking about, I'll just follow the official handle because if I'm just looking for factual pieces of information they are just, here's an event, here's a thing, here's a release, that's what I'll do. I follow people because I want to know what they think about it and what they're doing with these pieces of information. How they are contributing to a project, et cetera, and so don't shy away from having an opinion. Don't think that it's you know controversialness, you know, and that's bad. Being controversial is not necessarily bad. Having an opinion is a good thing, and quite frankly, is the only reason I follow most everybody that I do follow because these are the folks that recognized that spark about some technology or some process you know, people like Gene Kim, for example, and and Bacha Galoop, you know, John Willis is an example. They're providing very personal stories, very very personal anecdotes, their thoughts on technologies. I may not necessarily agree with them. In a lot of cases I may not, and I'll call them out, but that's the whole point. If you're just kind of out there saying, retweet, there's a webinar going on at this time, that's all I have to offer, and that's all my Twitter stream is filled with, or my Facebook stream is filled with, uh, my wall, rather, then that's not offering very much value
0: yeah if we wanted to just sit there and watch the billboards we would drive back and forth across the highway and and read them all day long we want to we go to work (laughs) to meet people and actually have conversations so and and this was a great conversation uh you know with that we're gonna we're gonna wrap up but chris i want to say thank you for taking the time out uh and you know, tell us again, you know, where, where we can find you. And and one last thing on the way out, you know, you're as a book lover, what's the book that you would recommend everyone's got to go out and buy right now and, uh, and put on their reading list?
1: Oh, wow. Well, I'll think of that while I plug the rest of the stuff. Um, So you can, you can find me on Twitter. It's at Chris Wall, it's W-A-H-L. My blog is wallnetwork.com and I'm available in Amazon.com, probably the easiest way to find the book. It's Networking for VMware Administrators. It came out last year, and just as a reminder, all of the royalties are being donated to the Alzheimer's Association. I think we're right around the $4,000 mark, so it just goes to show how little you make from writing a book, but that money is going straight to charity to a a really great cause. So even if you hate the book, you're making a donation to uh, some people that need your help. Uh, So as far as book that must read. Wow. I mean, you brought up The Phoenix Project. That's a really great book. I think um, man, there's there's some other good ones that I've been reading. I, I mostly read sci-fi and stuff. I mean, one of my favorite books ever, if you're a fantasy lover, and especially if you like Orson Scott Card, is Ender's Game, which they made a movie of that I totally thought was not good. <laughs> <to be nice. laughs> uh, but yeah, the actual series is probably twelve or thirteen books long. It covers Ender and Bean and Petra and a bunch of other folks. So that's just top of mind right now. If you're into some, you know, reading on the plane that is not techie, uh, full techie mode. Otherwise, I liked. Um, I can't remember the title. It's the one where they talk about the Nissan, uh, manuf- or the Toyota manufacturing. Um, do, using their methodologies versus like Ford and GM and things like that. Uh, John Willis actually recommended it. To uh, was it Steven
0: Spear? It or whatever. We'll try and see if we can find it. Put it in the in the link for the show notes. Uh, yeah,
1: I just don't have it in front of me. But it was a really great book that talked about how kind of Toyota ate everyone's lunch back in the 80s and 90s that were doing uh, kind of the old traditional manufacturing versus uh, you know kind of the more agile, you know, flexible manufacturing, and it goes through that process showing a industry you know automobiles right th- and it's very similar to it it just already happened you know 20 30 years ago so it's really great to look to- sometimes the best place to learn is is, is to look in the past because we often repeat uh, our our mistakes you know the history repeats itself very frequently
0: yeah, there's a reason why iterative as a methodology works in development is because you do something, you evaluate the results of what you've done, you measure the results, and then you learn from them. So when you go to the next iteration, it's always based on the previous step, uh, you know, rather than just like, all right, let's forget all of history and start all over. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Kaizen, you know, and, and that leads to Kanban and all sorts of really cool things about, you know, a way to, to manage stuff. So that's, that's great information. Excellent. Well, thank you, Chris. Uh, For folks who want to uh, find out more, of course, you can come to the Green Circle community. We can continue the chat there. It's greencircle.vmturbo.com. Uh, to get uh, subscribed to the podcast, go to gcondemand.io. There's links there to the uh, iTunes as well as the uh, Stitcher link. Uh, you see, you can get us and, and carry us around in your pocket wherever you're at, or even get you in your car. As we, I found out, somebody is actually listening to us uh, through Stitcher attached to their uh, their Ford or, or something or other. So pretty, uh, pretty neat to see the ways that you can consume technology. If you have any show ideas, of course, uh, drop us a line through there, and we're always uh, happy to keep this conversation going. So, Chris, uh, thanks very much for taking the time out today. Uh, keep on evangelizing, and uh, thanks for the work that you do in the community. And uh, you know, proud to to be a part of uh, some of the stuff you done
1: My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Disco Pussy Podcast.